Good evening, everyone. Um, yeah, as Joe said, God's glory alone. This week we've reached the, the last one. And um, then next week we're going to have a Q&A. Um, just if there's any questions that you've got from the whole series so far, we're going to uh, try and answer some of those next week. So we'll have a chance to jot some of those down um, later. Now, I think this topic of God's glory alone is going to be uh, challenging in lots of ways for us. Um, and I think one of the challenges is, is that we live in what I call the selfie generation, don't we? I tried to track down, or Lydia tracked down for me, some early uh, selfies for your amusement. Here's a good one. Oh, that's not it. Neither is that. That is it. There's Buzz Aldrin taking a selfie from the moon in 1969. Bet none of you has a selfie like that. Here's George Harrison of the Beatles, even earlier, at the Taj Mahal in 1966. Since the arrival of the uh, front-facing camera, selfies have just skyrocketed, haven't they? Apparently this year there are going to be um, over 33 billion selfies taken um, across the world. That's 92 million selfies a day. Now you might be sitting there smugly thinking, I never take a selfie. can't believe those people who take selfies. But let me ask you, who is the first person you look for in a group photograph? I think it's you, isn't it? Um, We all do it. Every human being instinctively wants this world to revolve around them. Now, this isn't a new problem, is it? We know it's a problem that's come from Genesis chapter 3 and the rebellion against God there. But I wonder whether it's just more obvious and accepted in our culture that it's okay to live for ourselves and self-fulfillment is the the name of the game. We talk about self-fulfillment in the workplace, in our relationships, in our hobbies, And in order to be self-fulfilled, we have the right to do whatever we want, whenever we want, as long as it feels right to us. Now, it's not surprising that that me-centred view of the world would affect our view of God and and salvation. And we'll be thinking about that as we go through tonight. Some people um, have talked about this sort of modern view of God as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Have a look on your sheet um, at this quote. This is what this so-called God is like. Here's what he might say to us. Hello there, you rang. How can I make you feel better right now? How can I serve you? Wow, you're looking nice today. You're just the greatest thing ever, aren't you? Man, I'm lucky to be your God. Now that's the so-called God that many people believe in, a me-centred God who exists to serve our needs at the ring of a bell. And do you see that if we believe in a God like this, then salvation will become less and less about the God who saved us, and more and more about the people that he came to save. Now, just take this lyric from a a popular Christian song, for example. There are some good words in this song, but what do you think about the chorus? Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. Now, there are some truths in that in that verse aren't there Jesus did take the fall for us he did think of us when he went to the cross to save us but did he really think of us above all is that right to sing are we the centre of this story well what we see tonight hopefully is going to challenge us but also liberate us because this world is not about us it's about God salvation is not primarily about you it's about God and that's a really good thing so let's start by thinking about a God-centred world. What is God's glory, firstly? How would we define God's glory? Well, I want to take a stab at defining it, but um, as you can imagine, it's quite a hard word to define. It's a bit like the word beauty. How do you define 
the word beauty. You have to sort of do it by referring to other things, don't you? You have, you have to say, you know, that's a beautiful piece of music, or that's a beautiful flower, or that's a beautiful view in the Lake District. To talk about beauty, we have to say there's beauty, and there's beauty, and there's beauty. And it's a similar thing with glory. How do we define what glory is? It's a multifaceted, rich concept in the Bible. Let's have a go. Let's have a look at one definition from James Hamilton to try and get a handle on it. He writes um, that God's glory is the weight of the majestic goodness of who God is and the resulting name or reputation that he gains from his revelation of himself. bit wordy, but uh, we can see something about God's glory in this definition. The first crucial thing is God's character, isn't it? Hamilton describes it as the weight of the majestic goodness of God. Glory is about God's weightiness, his heaviness, the perfection of his character. But he goes a step further and says that God's glory is also the revelation of himself and the respect and the honour that God gains from revealing himself to people. Exodus 33 is a wonderful example of this. Moses, when he meets God on Mount Sinai, says to God, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God responds to that request in chapter 34. Have a look with with me at verses 5 to 7. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So Moses says to God, God, show me your glory. And do you see what God does? He proclaims his character. He says who he is. He tells Moses that he is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So God's glory is about his weightiness, the perfection of his character. And it's also about his glory being seen and people knowing who he is. What do we mean when we talk about God's glory alone? What do we mean when we, talk, when we use that phrase? Well, I think we, we're saying that the thing that matters most to God, more than anything else, is his own glory and reputation. The thing that matters to God more than anything else is his own honour and glory and reputation. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 18, we read this. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. But later on in Isaiah, God tells his people that he has withheld his wrath from them. He says, I'm going to withhold my wrath. And the reason is given in verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory for another. Do you see how salvation, the withholding of God's wrath, is about the honour of his name? God cares above all else that his name is honoured. He cannot give his glory to another. Now, in fact, God shows us the terrible consequences when people try and steal glory from him. Just turn over um, to the next page of your handout. just going to mess with your mind with the handout tonight. And, uh, <laughs> oh, <sorry. Yes. laughs> 
Um, Acts chapter 12, I think, is a good example of when, when glory is, is taken by a person and is robbed from God. Have a look at what happens to King Herod, Acts chapter 12. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Maybe we don't go so far as to put a robe on ourselves and pretend to be a God like Herod did. But Romans 1 verse 21 tells us that the human attitude is the same. For though they knew God, talking about humanity, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. God alone should be glorified, but instead we give glory to ourselves in our own little me-centred worlds. Now before we move on, I just want to pause there for a second and think about an important question. Maybe anticipate a question that might come up if I didn't say it now in the question box. Um, sometimes people will object to the teaching and say, isn't it a bit arrogant for God to want glory for himself? Isn't it a bit big-headed for God to want his reputation to be maintained above all else? We know, don't we, if a person is like that, who always wants the spotlight to be on themselves, that's a really ugly thing, isn't it? It's not an attractive thing at all. But God says that it's right that we give him the credit and the glory. So over to you, round tables, and that question down in the box. Is it arrogant for God to want glory for himself. Have a little think for a couple of minutes. If God was to say, no, that should be your object of praise or that should be your object of glory, then something is more worthy than God. Um, that, would be, that would be wrong, wouldn't it? And yeah, as you say, it's actually good that we give glory to God. That is, that is a good thing for us. Let's start, um, just as we're answering that question, you might want to keep talking about that or ask a follow-up um, for the question box. Um, God is God, I think, is the, the, the sort of basic point here. He's absolutely right to work in this world for his own reputation. If he didn't, something would be terribly wrong with our world. So we live in a God-centred world. The thing that matters more than anything is his reputation, his glory, not our own. And this impacts, secondly, our view of salvation. We have a God-centred salvation just think back over the five solas so far scripture alone grace alone faith alone christ alone there's been a running theme throughout them all when it comes to salvation we have done nothing even faith as we saw a couple of weeks ago is a gift of god's grace it's the way we take hold of christ there's nothing you bring it's all about him as i said before if we think that we have a part to play in our salvation then we are worthy of some credit, aren't we? Worthy of some glory. Even if God has done 95% of the work and we've done 5%, we still have a reason to give glory to ourselves. But our salvation is all of God and therefore all to his glory. I want us to see uh, something about uh, the glory that God reveals in salvation in the Gospel of John. I want to say, um, first of all, before we look at this, that the cross of Jesus is deeply personal. We can say that Jesus' death and resurrection is good news for me and it's good for news for you personally. We can say that Christ died for me and my sins when he died on the cross. It's right to use that language. But we also need to say that the cross is not primarily about us and our salvation. Now, John's Gospel um, is a book full of God's glory. 42 times the word glory 
or glorify is used. So in your own times, read through John, underline all those times, test that claim, uh, or search on Bible Gateway might be an easier way to do that. Um, but there's a glory overload in John when Jesus begins to talk about his death. Here's three examples. John uh, 12, verse 23 on your sheet. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 12, verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for the very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The hour, by the way, is the hour of Jesus' death. Chapter 17, verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. So there were many times in the Old Testament and in the, the Gospel of John where God revealed his glory. But I think we can say that those times were the standard definition view of God's glory. Now we're going to see it in HD or ultra HD, which I think is a thing now, isn't it? I don't think I've got the capacity on any device to show ultra HD, but it's there if we want it. We're about to see the weight of God's character in ultra HD, clearer than we've ever seen it before. And Jesus says it will come at the cross. Father, glorify me when I die on the cross. Jesus saw the cross as the supreme revelation of God's character because at the cross we see God's kindness, his goodness, his love, his judgment, his salvation, his grace, his holiness, his mercy. If we use our earlier definition of glory, this is the time when we see the weight of the majestic goodness of God. At the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther emphasised this by saying that Christians must be theologians of the cross. And if you ever heard that term, we need to understand um, God by looking at how he has made himself known to us. And where has he made himself known most clearly? Well, it's in the cross of Jesus Christ. We need to be theologians of the cross. This is the paradox of Christianity, isn't it? Where would you expect to see God's glory? Not there when a man is dying on a Roman cross. Not there where he's being mocked and beaten and crucified. But glory comes through suffering. When Luther explained this, he said, He who does not know Christ does not know God hidden in suffering. Therefore, that person prefers works to suffering, glory to the cross, strength to weakness, wisdom to folly. In other words, if we don't see the glory of God in the cross of Jesus, then our thinking will be very worldly. We'll prefer what seems strong to what seems weak. We'll prefer what seems wise rather than what appears foolish. We'll want glory for ourselves rather than suffering. But the cross of Jesus rebukes all of that thinking. If glory is shown in the weakness of a crucified saviour, then that changes our whole view of what this world is all about. We need to be theologians of the cross. Now, I began this talk by saying um, that our Christianity can become very me-centred, partly because of the me-centred um, society in which we live and the me-centred hearts that we've got without Christ. God is turned into a cosmic Father Christmas <clears throat> who gives us good stuff when we ask him and who doesn't mind too much when we sin because we're at the centre of the world. But do you see how God's glory challenges this way of thinking? His glory is the most important thing in this world. And so God's chief goal is for his glory to be restored. That's what the gospel is all about. God is glorified at the cross He's glorified as he takes sinful rebels and makes them part of his people. And he will be glorified in the new creation where all of those people will be seen to be who he is, who they are. 
Um, one person, I think I've got it on the sheet. No, one um, person describes it like this, which I thought was helpful. It might be on the screen. God's desire to glorify himself sweeps us up to him in a plot whose unending finale lands us in the New Jerusalem where God is supremely glorified in our glorification. Let me read that again. God's desire to glorify himself sweeps us up to him in a plot whose unending finale lands us in the New Jerusalem where God is supremely glorified in our glorification. So in life now, as God saves us, And in the age to come in the new creation, God will be glorified as he lives there with his redeemed people. Now, in the last few minutes, I just want us to think uh, finally about a couple of implications from what we've seen. What will it look like to live a God-centred life? Well, we could we could we could chat for hours about that. Uh, There's so many implications about it. Um, One uh, writer describes it like this on your sheet. Uh, John Hannah says, Soli Deo Gloria, God's glory alone, is a call to a radical vision of God-centred living in all of life's many facets. The glory of God alone implies the right purpose for all of life, a God-centred purpose. All who share this radical view of Christianity make the ultimate purpose of life God's glory, not their own self-fulfilment or self-realisation. I find that a rebuke, even reading that. God's glory alone will affect every aspect of our life as we take the spotlight away from ourselves shine it on god then everything will change our priorities our motivations for work for exams what we spend our money on how we relate to others what we spend our time doing everything will change but i want you to think about two specific areas that will be different if we understand god's glory alone it should change firstly how we pray and secondly how we serve firstly it changes how we pray i wonder what you pray for if you're a Christian, what are the things on your prayer list each week? What do you ask for for the, uh, the most? From my own experience, I know that my prayers are often desperate cries of self-focused needs. They're often about my life, my godliness, my ministry, my struggles, things going on in my life. All those things are worth praying for. We need to be praying for those things. But you see as well that as we understand this God-centered world and as we believe in a God-centered salvation, then Our prayers should be more God-centred as well, shouldn't they? Have a look at the first line from Matthew 6, uh, verse 9, the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. He says, start like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's a prayer about God's glory, isn't it? prayer that his name would be set apart as holy, that people would know the weight of the majestic character of our God. And so I want to think with you about how that might change the way you pray. If you start with the glory of God, and if that is your main concern, how would your prayers about other things begin to change? Well, let me give you some examples. Here's one prayer. Heavenly Father, help me battle sin and live a life that pleases you so that my life would reflect your glory more and more. May people see my deeds and hear my words and come to glorify you on the day you return. What about the conflict in Ukraine? Heavenly Father, as we think about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, we pray that in some way, because of your goodness, people would come to know you as their God. We thank you that you will one day be glorified as you bring justice to this world. Please bring that day soon. Or, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would save my friend, not so that I can get the credit, but so that honour and praise would go to your name. 
We could go on and on, couldn't we? Do you see how our prayers would change if we begin with this thought of hallowed be your name, Heavenly Father. May your glory be our chief focus. Second implication um, is how we serve. A few years ago, I remember, oh yeah, we need to flip over our sheets onto the back and um, think about how we serve. I remember watching a tennis match a few years ago and seeing someone on the, on the uh, TV in the crowd and this guy uh, was wearing a high visibility jacket as sort of bright as you can get and I noticed that in between points he'd bring out this um, big bright yellow arrow and just point the arrow at himself <laughs> so that later on he could go and watch the footage back and he could see himself there in the crowd jumping around in his high visibility jacket. Now that can all too easily happen when we serve in church I think. God is the main event, isn't he? The spotlight deserves to be shone on him alone because this world is about his glory and his praise. But it's so easy, isn't it, to try and grab glory for ourselves. We try and stand out, get maybe the subtle arrow pointing on ourselves as we serve. We might tell people how busy and stressed we are because we want people to know how much we're doing um, to serve. Sometimes that might be a plea for help and we need to Uh, care for the person who tells us this but often it can be a way that we try and shine the spotlight on ourselves we want people to know how busy we are we want people to know the hours we've served at church or the ways we've loved people because we want some credit or maybe perhaps you've noticed the the desire for approval when you serve in church perhaps it gets us down when we're not thanked for doing a certain job or serving in a certain way we crave that people notice us because we're not content for all the glory to go to god alone Another way we might shift the glory onto ourselves is by thinking we can serve in our own strength. We might begin to believe the lie that we are self-dependent and self-reliant. We don't need to pray. We don't need other people to help us. We we can just get on and serve in our own strength uh, that we provide. But look with me at how Peter talks about serving in 1 Peter 4 verse 11. He says, if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. Excuse me. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. See what's going on in this verse. If we serve, Peter says, we should do so with the strength God provides. Everything we do can only be done in and through his strength. And what's the result if we serve in God's strength and not our own? Well, God gets the praise. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. He gets the credit because he has been the goal and the means by which we have served. As Psalm 115 verse 1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. What will it look like to live our lives with that as our motto on our mantra? Not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. As we come to the end of this series, um, we've covered some ground, haven't we? Um, Thank you for being engaged and asking good questions and and being interested in in the topics we've looked at. In summary, I hope it's led to two simple responses, the response of repentance and rejoicing. Firstly, I think there'll be ways that we need to repent based on what we've seen. As we've thought about the gospel, we've seen that salvation is God's work. He's done it all, which is why all glory goes to him. And in our hearts of hearts, we do fight against that, don't we? We would love, I would love to be able to contribute just something to my salvation. But that's me-centred thinking. Every week we've seen that there's nothing we bring, it's all about him. 
And so I imagine there'll be ways that we need to repent of self-dependence or lack of prayer or the ways we try and bring glory to ourselves rather than God. But secondly, I hope it's also led us to rejoice. I hope you've seen why we needed the Reformation in the 16th century, why it was a good thing. When we started this series many moons ago, um, you'll remember that I said, or you might remember, you probably remember, that the Roman Catholic Church had obscured the gospel by putting scaffolding around the truth. We use that image of Big Ben and the scaffolding going up around Big Ben, obscuring the beauty that was underneath. Well, the reformers gradually tore down that scaffolding piece by piece so that Jesus would shine more brightly. And aren't you glad that they did? The gospel of Jesus captured in the five solas that aren't ours, as Joe reminded us, but for all believers. We have so much to rejoice in, don't we? God has made himself known to us in his word alone. By his grace alone, he sent Jesus alone to rescue us from God's wrath. And when we have faith alone in Christ, we are put in the right with God. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is the result? Soli Deo Gloria, God's glory alone. As Paul says in Romans, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen.